Father God, we have rightly sung about your holiness. We have rightly sung about your knowledge, your everlasting understanding. We have rightly sung by the name of Jesus. Father, may these truths that we have sung about, truths that we will see in the book of Habakkuk, may they be truths that we stand upon when we are concerned, befuddled, betwixt, confused, and we stand on you and on your truth. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. A long time ago, I've never seen it, but I understand that there was a show and it was called Kids Say the Darndest Things. It was a show that talked about the quizzical nature of children, how they are comical, how they are laughable, how they say things that delight our lives. As I thought about kids saying such zany things, I thought about a teacher trying to help her students understand how the blood circulates in one's body. She tried to illustrate it this way. She said, if I were to stand on my head for quite some time, the blood would all flow down to my head and my face would turn red. If that is true, why is it that when I'm standing up, my feet don't turn red? One kid trying to help her out said, well, unlike your head, your feet is not empty. (laughs) Kids do say the zaniest things. As I think about kids saying unusual things, I, I think about a Christian school. There was a cafeteria line and at the very front of it, there was a table with a pile of apples And the principal put a sign there that said, take only one, God is watching. And you would go through the course of the line. At the end, there was another table. It had a pile of cookies. And a young kid had written a sign saying, take all you want, God is watching the apples. (laughs) I can't believe that Pastor Ryan was that clever as a child, but apparently he was. Finally, I think of a teacher. She was trying to impress upon her students that they need to buy the class photo. She wanted them to go home to talk the photo up, to bring 350 back to purchase the photo. And so she was showing the photo to the kids and she said, just think 50 years from now, you're gonna say, there's Susie, she's a surgeon. There's Johnny, he's a carpenter. There's Amanda, she's a lawyer. Again, a student tried to help her. He cried out, and there's Mrs. Smith. She's our teacher, she's dead. (laughs) Sometimes they don't say the cutest things, but they do say zany things. We expect that of children, but we don't expect that of God's prophets. We expect God's prophets will do what God says, They will go when God bids. They will speak and be the mouthpiece of God. We expect prophets to have a a standard of living that is just short of holiness. 
but that's not the way all prophets work at all times. They're human. They're sinful just like us. Habakkuk is a prophet. What makes Habakkuk so meaningful to us is that he has high points and he has low points. He has spiritual points in, in which he, he excites our faith and he has spiritual points in which we say, man, I hope I don't act that way. Part of the narrative literature, 40% of Scripture, it's inerrant, it is without error, because it tells us exactly what took place, exactly what they thought, exactly what they said. But that doesn't mean that everything a prophet or a character in the Bible does, we ought to do, or everything they say, we ought to follow. Sometimes in their humanity, sometimes in their sinfulness, they act in inappropriate ways. And that's true of Habakkuk. You remember Habakkuk, he's essentially a 7th century B.C. prophet. He's a prophet to the nation of Judah. Now we remember that at one time, Israel was 12 tribes, 10 northern tribes, 2 southern tribes. And the first three kings ruled over all 12 tribes. They were the kings of Saul and David and Solomon. But when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, came to the throne around 930 B.C., you remember that he acted foolishly and the ten northern tribes seceded from the union and they retained the name Israel. And the two southern tribes became known as Judah. And it's to those two southern tribes that Habakkuk speaks. Now you remember in the nation of Judah... There will be a total of 20 kings. 14 of them will not chase after the things of God. Only six of them will be God-centered kings. Habakkuk was raised during the last of those six God-centered kings. One of the two boy kings, Josiah. And you remember that at age 20, Josiah had the forethought to take down the high places the false places of idolatry and false worship, the places of Baal and Asherah. And you remember that he had the foresight to go into the temple that had been desecrated and had been left desolate for some time. And the high priest Hilkiah found the book of the law that had not been read for decades. And he read it to the people and they were cut to their hearts. And they confessed and they repented and there was revival in the nation. That was Habakkuk's childhood. But since the death of Josiah, the final four kings were all ungodly. And you remember that Habakkuk is a bit upset with God. His first issue with God is that God is slow to anger and abounding in love. Of all the lousy characteristics that God would have, He's slow to anger and abounding in love. We love that about God. We're thankful that God is that way towards us. But Habakkuk feels that Judah has gone so wayward that God, why aren't you acting? Why aren't you doing something? And he almost rebukes God for acting too slowly of the immorality and unethical behavior of his nation. 
And then when God acts, finally Habakkuk thinks, finally you're entering the game, finally you're getting on the playing field, God, finally. So when God acts, he raises up the Babylonians, also called the Chaldeans, a very wicked nation, a more wicked nation than Judah as his chastising tool to bring Judah to repentance. And Habakkuk is scandalized. How dare God raise up a more wicked nation to chastise a wicked but decidedly less wicked nation of Judah. That is the setting of our book. Let me pick up, and I want to read from chapter 1, verse 12, all the way to chapter 2, verse 1. Habakkuk 1, verse 12. Are you, God, not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. And the he there is Babylon. Babylon brings them up with a hook. Babylon drags them with his net. Babylon gathers them in the dragnet. And so he, Babylon, rejoices and is glad. Therefore he, Babylon, sacrifices to his net. He makes offerings to his dragnet rather than to God. And by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Are you going to do nothing, God, while Babylon acts this way? Chapter 2, verse 1. I, Habakkuk, will take my stand at my watch post. I will station myself on the tower. I will look out to see what he, God, will say to me and what I, Habakkuk, will answer concerning my complaint. I think of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I think of his magisterial commentary, Faith Tried and Triumphant. He talks about what happens when you and I are betwixt, when we're befuddled, when we're confused, when we don't know why God is doing what God is doing, why God is allowing what God is allowing why God doesn't act at certain points and he acts at other points and we're confused and our mind is muddled and we wonder why, Lord, why? And Dr. Lloyd-Jones, he, he talks about the need at such a moment not to act but to think. To think deeply about who God is. To think deeply about what God is like to think deeply about how God has acted in the past. And as we think about what God has done in the past, it gives us confidence for the present. And we begin to realize that God is trustworthy, even though we are unsure exactly what God is doing and the movements that he is allowing or not allowing. 
in addition to thinking deeply and not acting, we are to pray and we are to ask God for wisdom, for guidance, for insight, that we might understand how God is moving and how we are to respond to his actions. In contrast, perhaps we live in a day and age where far too many people perplexed betwixt and befuddled and bewildered by what God has allowed or what God has done, they throw up their hands in despair and they stop talking to God in prayer. They stop reading about God and his character in scripture. They stop coming together and fellowshipping with other believers. They check the nuns and their card-carrying nuns as in what faith do you have? None. What belief system do you have none and they scuttle their belief in the one true great God. In contrast, we have Habakkuk. It's a high point. In verse 12, he says in a rhetorical sentence, are you not everlasting? The Hebrew text demands the answer, yes. I love this about Habakkuk. He's befuddled, he's betwixt, he's confused, He's even complaining. He's even railing against God. Not something we recommend. But in the midst of it, he begins to think about the character of God. Are you not everlasting? In other words, you're aligned with arrows at both points. You and I are eternal, so is God. Eternal means that we will live forever in the future in heaven if we know Christ as Savior, separated from God in hell if we do not know Christ. We are eternal, but he is infinite. He is everlasting. He is an arrow going both ways. There has never been, there never will be a moment without the existence of God. He even creates time. He is infinite in all ways. And so while you and I are befuddled, while we're betwixt, well, we're surprised. Well, we have no idea what God may or may not be doing. God is not surprised. He's not up in heaven. He's not wringing his hand saying, I wonder what's going to happen next. From the very beginning, prior to the beginning, he has known all things simultaneously. He is an everlasting God. And so when you and I begin to wonder, God, what are you doing? When we're dismayed, let's be like Habakkuk and let's focus on the attributes of God. He is an everlasting God. But he's more than that, isn't he? Verse 12 also calls him a holy God. God is sacrosanct. He is just, he is right. He is perfect in all of his judgment. He's a holy God. God. Now, as you and I think about the attributes, the characteristics of God, we might think this way. If your tendency is more Arminian, that is, you think man is more deterministic in salvation rather than God, and you are asked uh, what attribute of God is preeminent, you probably will say love, and it's a great attribute. The Bible says God is love. And we love this about God. We love that we are the object of his rapt attention, that he loves the world, that he loves us, loves us enough to pay the penalty of our sin through Christ. He is love. If you go to a Calvinist, 
someone who believes that God is more deterministic than man in salvation. And you ask a Calvinist, what's the preeminent attribute of God? They might say sovereignty. And we love this about God. When the world is out of control, God is in control. When my life is out of control, God is in control. He is sovereign over all things. If you go to a Calarmine, someone who's sitting on the fence and said, well, God and man are both deterministic when it comes to salvation. And you ask her or him, what is God's preeminent attribute? They might say, well, it's grace and mercy. And we love this. How often have we fallen upon the grace and mercy of God? How often have we come to God ashamed of our actions and, and ask God to forgive us and he cleanses us and restores us? We love that God is love. We love that he is sovereign. We love that he is merciful. We love that he is grace. I remember the day that I was writing the sermon. It was a little while ago. There weren't that many people in the office, but there were, there were some of my coworkers and some of the attenders of Highland were there and, and I saddled up to 10 of them. One by one, they couldn't cheat. And I said, uh, quiz time. What is the preeminent attribute of God in the Bible? Not that you can't really divide God's attributes. I get that. But what is the highest stressed attribute of God in the Bible? And I got great answers. But only one, he's got a really big head, Jeff Weiss. He's the only one that really got it right. Yeah, I mean, there he is. Holiness, the only attribute of God mentioned both in the Old and the New Testament to the third power, Isaiah 6, he is holy, holy, holy. Revelation 4, he is holy, holy, holy. We can't divide God up into all his attributes. I get that. But the only attribute in Scripture Mentioned side by side by side three times is the holiness of God. And so when you and I are befuddled, when we're retwixed, when we're unsure, when we don't know the path that we ought to go forward, or we're unsure of what God is doing, we need to remember that he is everlasting. Nothing surprises God. He's not hoodwinked at all. And he's holy. Or as Habakkuk says in verse 13, he has pure eyes. He's a holy God. No wonder he alone is our rock. Now think with me of the struggle of Habakkuk, verses 14 to 17. He's looking around and he's not sure what God is doing. Why would God allow the wicked Babylonians, the more wicked than Judeans, to prosper? Why would he allow them to ransack nations, to hook them, to drag them in their nets and their dragnets, to gather them together? Why would he allow them to worship at the idol of their own prosperity and the hands of what they have created? And he's perplexed and he's betwixt by God. Why is God allowing this? And yet in the midst of it, he wants to remember, I need to remember, God is everlasting. God is holy. God has pure eyes. He is my rock. He's a trustworthy God. As I think of the trustworthy nature of God, 
I think of May 7th, 1915, the RMS Lusitania. It was sunk by a German U-boat. A torpedo hit this, this British passenger liner. And 1,200 people out of 1,960 perished. There's a book written about the Lusitania. And in it, they interview a man named Lorett. Lorett was a passenger on the ship. And he was on the top deck. And he was watching as the ship was going down. And he was watching the passengers. And back in 1915, not that many people knew how to put on a life preserver. It was something rather foreign. And so throughout the, the top deck, there were little signs all along the deck, neat little signs that told people how to wear a life preserver. But the people were on a cruise. They were on vacation. They didn't bother to read the neat little signs and when the torpedo hit the ship and when it was going down and the people are panicking and they're grabbing life preservers, Lorette said he saw people put their heads through the handrests. He saw people putting their legs through and many people had the life preserver down low rather than up high. And he looked out on the water and he said it was like seagulls of people bobbing upside down, drowning, wearing a life jacket the wrong way. And he saw the crew. The crew was frantically trying to teach people how to put the life preserver on the right way. But the passengers were afraid of the crew. They thought the crew was trying to steal their life preservers. So rather than listen to the trustworthy crew members, they ran from them. The signs were trustworthy. The crew was trustworthy. The life preservers, if they had been warned correctly, they were trustworthy. But the people panicked in the midst of confusion and they didn't trust what was trustworthy. And that's what's going on in Habakkuk's life. That sometimes is what goes on in our lives. We find ourselves confused, betwixt, surprised, we find ourselves not knowing what God is doing or allowing or not doing or not allowing. And rather than turning to God and saying, you are everlasting, you are holy, you have pure eyes, you are the rock, you are trustworthy. We join the many who scuttle the faith, who stop praying and talking to God, who stop reading scripture, who stop gathering corporately with other believers and become card-carrying members of the nuns. As in none, I have no faith. I have no affiliation. Habakkuk does offer a better model. It's not a perfect model because he's not a perfect man. But in the midst of his confusion, he thinks on the attributes of God. God is everlasting. God is holy. God has pure eyes. God is my rock. And then he falters again. Let's pick up in chapter two. I want to read verse one. I will take my stand at the watch post. That's the rampart. 
the picture is of a city that has a wall around it. And at the top of the wall, there's a, a ledge, a path around the wall where archers can stand to shoot down. And there's towers where people can look out at the, the approaching enemy. That's where Habakkuk is. I'll take my stand at my watch post. I'll station myself on the tower. I'll look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk is befuddled. He's, he's overwhelmed. Perhaps like some of us. Maybe we look out and we see Kim Jong-un of the most atheistic country in the world, North Korea. And we say, why does God not do something with this man? He threatens nuclear annihilation to Japan and South Korea and the United States. Why is God not doing something? Habakkuk's perplexed, like perhaps we are. We look at Bashar al-Ashad. We, we, we look at this ruler of Syria, a man since 2011, who has murdered a quarter million of his own people. His own country is in disarray and civil war. And we say, God, why aren't you doing something? We think of Vladimir Putin. By any estimation, a thug, a former KGB agent, a man who unlawfully annexed Crimea in 2014. And we say, God, why aren't you doing something. We look at the normalcy of immorality. And the new morality is that morality is wrong and evil. And we say, God, why aren't you doing something? Perhaps some here today are sick or have a loved one who is sick or hurting, or you're feeling alienated and alone and isolated. And you say, God, why aren't you doing something. That's Habakkuk on the rampart. And he stands on the rampart and he says, Lord, I'm going to stand here until you answer me. And when you answer me, then I will evaluate what you say. Kudos for his honesty. Kudos for turning to the Lord. But I'm not completely sure that his attitude is exactly right. There's two ways to take the text. Some people look at the text and they say, well, Habakkuk is like a trial lawyer who has great confidence in the justice system. And the lawyer makes his best case. And then he says, your honor, I rest my case. And he's confident that the judge will rule rightly. That's one way to take the text. I'm telling you, I take it a bit more pessimistically. I really don't like the language of chapter 2, verse 1. Let me read it again. I will take my stand at my watch post, station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he will say to me. I love all of that. I don't like the last sentence. And what I will answer concerning my complaint. It's almost as though Habakkuk says, Lord, I'm going to get up in my military's tower, I'm going to ask you the question. I'm expecting an answer. And when I get it, then I'm going to evaluate it. And I'm going to let you know what I think. That's the way I think the text reads. 
And what bothers me is this. Habakkuk has forgotten who he is in relation to who God is. I'm thankful that God gives me many answers, many insights. I'm thankful for the inspired word of God, the 66 books, the canon of scripture. I'm thankful that sometimes in my confusion, I can pray and God will give me insight. I'm thankful for that. But I think I go too far when I expect that God will answer me, that God owes me an answer, that God owes me an explanation. He is God and I am not. I think Habakkuk has gone just a little bit too far. But we know the rest of the story, don't we? We know what will really happen. Habakkuk is scandalized. How can God use the wicked Chaldeans, the Babylonians, more wicked than Judah, to chastise Judah? How can God do that? Why are the Babylonians getting away with it? Why are they hooking humanity? Why are they dragnetting humanity? Why are they worshiping at the altar of their own hands? Why is God letting them get away with it? But God didn't let them get away with it. We know that 60 years later in 539, God will raise up the Medo-Persian Empire. He will raise up Cyrus II called Cyrus the Great. And the Medo-Persian Empire will be used as a chastising tool against Babylon who does not confess, who does not repent. You see, we can look back in history and see all that God has done. But when we're a part of the history, sometimes we're just like Habakkuk. We say, Lord, I don't understand. I'm perplexed. I'm confused. Why is someone getting sick? Why is someone dying? Why is someone, and we fill in the blank with a tragedy or a difficulty in our life. And at those times, we need to remember, well, we don't have a panoramic view God does. God is everlasting. God is holy. He's right. He's just. He's got pure eyes. He is the rock. And with Paul, we claim Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good. Two conditions, for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. I suspect someday, if you are a Christ follower, you and I will get to heaven and God will allow us to see a panoramic view of all that he's done and we'll fall on our knees in worship of all that God has done. And we'll say, of course, of course that's what you're doing. How could I be so thick? How could I have not seen it? How could I have doubted? Of course, God, you are acting, you are moving, you are working redemptively through history in a powerful and wonderful way. And so when you and I are perplexed and confused, fall upon the everlasting, holy, pure I God, who is the rock, and know that a day is coming when we will be able to see all that God does. And if we love God, and if we are walking according to his purpose, he is working good for us. What a great God we serve. Let's pray. Father God,
We thank you that in our humanity, though we can be like Habakkuk, you are not. You are never like us. You never doubt. You're never bewildered. You're never confused. You are holy. You are sovereign. You are filled with love and grace and mercy. You have pure eyes and you are our rock. And may we worship you because you are worthy. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.